Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Blessed Father, we ask as we reopen your holy scriptures that you'll not let anyone here today hear your word proclaimed in vain. Instead, Father, we earnestly petition you that by the convincing power of the Holy Spirit, may your word run unhindered and be glorified in our midst today. Most especially, Father, as your word today will hold forth to us the splendid glory of Jesus Christ our Lord as the eternal Son of God, as deity, as one with you, Father, and the Spirit. Lord, give us ears to hear this great truth with a fresh conviction worked deep in our hearts by the blessed Spirit and the truth of your word. We ask and hold such petitions before your throne of grace now in the name and for the sake and honor of Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen. I do invite you to take the word of God and let's turn to the gospel according to John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. As we consider this morning what I have entitled as a question, Lord, liar, lunatic, John, chapter 8. We're going to begin at verse 48, reading to the end of the chapter in verse 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died, Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so reads the infallible, the inerrant, certain and sure word of the living, eternal God. Next to the apostolic council that met in Jerusalem, recorded in Acts chapter 15, the council of Nicaea is the most important meeting ever convened in church history. An eyewitness of the council called it a true monument and token of victory against every heresy. Church historian Philip Schaff said of Nicaea that it forms an epoch in the history of doctrine, summing up the results of all previous discussions on the deity of Christ and the incarnation, and at the same time regulating the further development of Christian orthodoxy for centuries. This is why the Nicene Creed, which was forged in the council, has stood the test of time for 1,700 years as giving the accurate expression and interpretation of biblical revelation concerning the true person of God's Son made flesh as well as the great doctrine of God's nature as Trinitarian. But what called such a council and creed to come forth was the preaching and writings of a Libyan presbyter in the city of Alexander named Arius. What made Arius' teaching so deviant and dangerous to the church at large was its outright denial of the deity of Christ, which consequently denied the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. For Arius, there was one God who is the Father, while God's Son is of a different nature, making him less than God and thereby inferior to God. Arius therefore taught that the Son of God is a creature who thus had a beginning and could not have direct knowledge of God the Father. So then the co-eternal and consubstantial nature of God's Son in relation to the Father was outright rejected by Arius. The result was that the followers Arius gained by this heretical teaching worshipped a demigod rather than the eternal Son of God made flesh. Facing this heresy... Arius' bishop, a man named Alexander, sought to discuss with Arius what he was propagating. Alexander argued that the church had worshipped Jesus as truly God since the inception of Christianity. And to worship Jesus as someone less than God is to worship a creature who is not God's true son. Arius, however, could not be convinced and actually sought the support of other bishops to his position throughout the Roman Empire. The consequence of these actions called for Arius' excommunication in 321 A.D. But despite this corrective discipline, the Arian heresy was spreading so that it drew the attention of the Roman emperor Constantine to assemble the very first ecumenical council of the church in the post-apostolic era. They convene in a northwest town of Asia Minor called Nicaea. The year was 325 A.D. Nearly 300 bishops were present, representing both the western and eastern churches of the empire, along with many presbyters and deacons as well. Constantine also ordered Arius to appear. 
The council lasted from the middle of June to late July. The Arians made up a minority of those present, but boldly made their case to the council to adopt a creed which emphatically denied the deity of Christ. To the rest of the council, such a brazen denial of the truth of Scripture called for the formal rejection of Arianism as standing clearly outside the pale of Christian orthodoxy. This brought the council to condemn Arius as a heretic and an enemy of Christianity along with all those who followed in his train. But such an anathema needed a creedal response in writing to state with clarity what the church has always affirmed as the biblical revelation of God's eternal son. Thus, the Nicene Creed was brought forth. Fifty years after Nicaea, however, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, the Nicene Creed was expanded to confess the full deity of the Holy Spirit, the result of which brought a full confession for the triunity of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But at the Nicene Council in 325, it was the deity of God's Son that took center stage against Arianism. The most significant words in this creed read as follows. We just read them. You're going to hear them again. Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. These words strike a death blow at the Arian heresy with a special cut made by the words of the same essence, homoousios, of the same essence as the Father. Here the creed confesses for all time in the history of the church that we believe Jesus Christ to be as God's Son. He is eternal, unchangeable, and uncreated. Generated from the Father, but not created by the Father holding the same nature and being as God the Father. To believe anything less about Jesus Christ is to believe a false Christ who cannot save sinners from their sins and reconcile them to God. But it must be said that Arius was not the first to deny and reject the deity of Jesus Christ. What the church faced in the 4th century with Arianism was nothing new. In fact, those who originally repudiated and disputed the deity of Jesus Christ were those Jews who actually saw him and heard him when he sojourned this earth during his incarnation in the 1st century. Despite the sinless life they witnessed about him and the miracle-working power they beheld from him, along with the infallible teaching he gave to them, yet, seeing all of this by the life and work of God's incarnate Son, the majority of the Jews, especially their leaders, held Jesus Christ in contempt and refused to believe the truth of his deity as God's eternal Son. And nowhere do we see a greater example of this than in John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59, where our study for this morning will be fixed. These verses bring to a close John chapter 8, 
And these final verses actually bring us to the pinnacle point of a growing opposition to Jesus emanating from the Jewish religious leaders, which John the Apostle has been narrating for us since the beginning of John chapter 5. From this passage then, concluding John chapter 8, I want us to see two things. First, very simply, how the Jews reproach Jesus, and then second, how Jesus responds to the Jews. To begin with then, let's see first how the Jews reproach Jesus. Reading verses 48 to 52. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? By the fact that verse 48 begins reporting that the Jews answered him is clearly indicating that they're responding to something our Lord has said. Turning back then at the preceding verses here in John 8, very specifically in verses 43 to 47, Jesus declared what is perhaps the strongest denunciation against the Jewish religious leaders anywhere in the four Gospels. Not denying their physical kinship to Abraham or the covenant God made with Israel as a nation, Jesus nevertheless exposed the root of their rejection of him. It was due to their spiritual father who was not God, but the devil. Therefore, as children of the devil, Jesus indicted these Jews as incapable of hearing God's words with love, trust, and obedience. Well, how do these Jewish religious leaders respond to such unvarnished condemnation? Are they cut to the quick by what Jesus said? Are they humbled and seek to repent of their unbelief? Do they turn to Jesus and embrace him for the truth of who he is as the Christ of the living God, their one and only Savior and Lord? Is this how we see them respond? Well, it's sad to say that the response of the Jewish leaders only exposes further their rejection of Jesus. And we see this in three different ways. First, by defaming his character. By defaming his character. In verse 48, we read that they answered Jesus by saying, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And then again, in verse 52, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Having been vanquished by everything Jesus said, the Jews resort to nothing but vulgar and blasphemous declamation. J.C. Ryle said of this conduct, To lose temper and call names 
is a common sign of a defeated cause. Now that's wisdom. You need to take note of that. Nicknames, Ryle says, nicknames, insulting epitaphs, and violent language are favorite weapons with the devil. When other means of carrying on his warfare fail, he, the devil, stirs up his servants to smite with the tongue. But one has to ask, what do these terms insinuate? To begin with, why call Jesus a Samaritan? Like, what's the big deal with that? Why call him a Samaritan? In fact, it's the only recorded place in all four Gospels where we read that the Jewish religious leaders called Jesus a Samaritan. Well, this by name was obviously calling back what Jesus said of these Jews in verse 39, that if they were the true children of Abraham, then they would be doing Abraham's works like not seeking to kill God's son. While they could claim physical kinship to Abraham, they could not be tagged as his spiritual children. You understand? They knew nothing of Abraham's faith. Needless to say, nothing could be more insulting to the pride of these Jews. So in response to this, they labeled Jesus a Samaritan, which placed Jesus first in the class of a false teacher. Since he didn't abide by their interpretation of the law, and the Samaritans, of course, were no different like that. And second, it denounced him, and this was the most cutting, it denounced him as a traitor to Israel. As someone who wasn't true to their national faith and identity, which in their minds meant that Jesus had no part with the true people of God. We must remember, historically speaking, that for the Jews in the first century, there was no ethnicity they hated more than the Samaritans, who they looked down on as physical and spiritual half-breeds. They had no dealings with them in any sense. And listen, would not even pass through Samaria if such a route was geographically easier. No, they would take the long way around just so that they would not set foot on Samaritan soil. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. So to class Jesus as a Samaritan was a vitriolic slur of the first order. But this was not the only slander they threw at Jesus. They also said he had a demon. And repeated this twice. He repeated this twice. Clearly there was nothing more outrageous and blasphemous to tag on God's eternal son than to say he has a demon. But this slanderous accusation, we know from the record of the Gospels, this was a favorite among the Jewish leaders to smear Jesus with. And yet here we see the hateful fury of their spiritual blindness. Now think about this, okay? Really think hard about this. Processing everything they heard Jesus teach and even witnessing the miracles he worked, their final conclusion 
was that a demon had driven him insane. That was their final conclusion. Their unbelief and rejection of God's son could not reach a lower place of defamation of character than this. You couldn't get any lower than this. But this was not the only way they rejected him. Second, we also see the Jews' rejection of Jesus by the fact that they dishonored him. They dishonored him. In verse 49, we read Jesus answering the Jews, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. By this statement, not only does Jesus very calmly deny that he is demon-possessed, but he makes a striking contrast between himself and the Jews by saying and doing always and only what the Father gives him to say and do, Jesus honors the Father, which the Jews clearly did not. Now, how do we know this? We know this because the Jewish religious leaders did not honor God's Son. Since everything Jesus said and did was only what the Father told him to say and do, then to dishonor Jesus is in fact to dishonor the Father. Indeed, this is what Jesus plainly declared in John 5, 23. Listen to this. The Lord said, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. But such dishonor towards the Son of God incarnate was precisely the guilt of these Jewish leaders. And by this term translated dishonor, Jesus is accusing them of treating him in the most shameful, nefarious, appalling, and infamous way. And listen, this wasn't something that they did only once or perhaps twice, but it was the settled pattern of their whole attitude and action toward Jesus Christ the Lord. The word dishonor is used here as a present tense verb. So we need to understand this was their way, their way of rejecting him in nothing but an odious, egregious manner. So, so not only did they defame him, but in turn they dishonored him altogether. But there is one more way we see in this passage concerning the Jews' rejection of Jesus. They also rejected him by disputing him. By disputing him. Reacting to what Jesus asserted in verse 51, that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, as recorded in verses 52 and 53, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Understand this, beloved. Understand this when you read the Gospels. 
there was nothing Jesus could say or do in the face of the Jewish religious leaders that did not set them off in a relentless quarrel. Since they rejected him with such malvolent hatred, then his words were not something for them to take seriously as the truth. Instead, they disputed. They disputed everything he said. Everything. And such is the case in this present passage. Our Lord declares that whoever keeps his word, which, which means to believe, trust in, obey all that Jesus has said and promised as saving truth, then such a one who does this, which is a believer in Jesus Christ, obviously, Jesus says, they shall never see death. What does that mean? That they shall never see death. It's, it's, not, that, it's not that he shall never die physically, but he'll never see and experience eternal death. The believer in Jesus Christ will escape the eternal punishment and condemnation of his sins. But in the face of such a redeeming promise, the Jews in their rejection of Jesus argue against this by calling him demonically insane, denying the truth of his word since Abraham and all the prophets died. And since in their estimation Jesus is surely not greater than Abraham or the prophets, then who does he really think he is? They Listen, they do not ask this because they honestly want to know, but they raise this query more as an insult. How could you dare? make such a promise like this, do you really think you have the power over death? Who do you think you are? That's the sense. That's the, that's the essence, the spirit of this question. What's behind it? Well, this is how the Jews brought reproach against Jesus. In their unbelief, they defamed him. They dishonored him. They disputed everything he said and did. It was an all-out rejection of God's eternal Son made flesh. But moving to our next major point in the study, let's consider now how Jesus responds to the Jews. Reading verses 54 to 59, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, 
I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. While we have already seen and touched on some of our Lord's response to the Jews in the first half of this passage, yet it is in this latter half where we reach the apex in how Jesus responds to the Jews. And what is so significant about our Lord's response is that he is actually answering their inquiry from verse 53. Who do you make yourself out to be? So in answer to this question, Jesus now makes the most astonishing claim about himself in stark contrast from the Jews. But it is a claim which doesn't merely put Jesus in a better light than his enemies. He is not saying here that he's just a better version of humanity than they are. Oh, no. No, no, no. No, what Jesus claims about himself, listen, what he claims is what no mere sensible sane human would ever say about who they are. Ever. That is because in these recorded words of our Lord, he is pulling back the veil as it were and revealing the truth that he is more than human. He is in fact deity. His relation therefore to the Father whom these Jews call our God is an eternal relation to the Father holding forth the same essence as the Father. Sound familiar? In other words, all that the Father is as God, Jesus is asserting here that he is co-equal with the Father as God also. Now how does Jesus make such an extraordinary claim? He begins first by stating, that he doesn't glorify himself, but it is the Father who glorifies him. Reading verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. What Jesus is claiming here is that the Father's esteem for him as his Son is evidenced by his love and admiration for him as well as the father's desire to make his son the loved and admired of others. This means, of course, that the glory of Jesus as God's eternal son is not a lesser or inferior glory than the father's. It is the self-same glory. It is the glory of God. But in what ways, we might ask, did the Father glorify his Son? A.W. Pink answers this question by stating, God honored him at his birth by sending the angels to herald him as Christ the Lord. He honored him during the days of his infancy by directing the wise men from the east to come and worship the young king. He honored him at his baptism by proclaiming him his beloved son. 
He honored him in death by not suffering his body to see corruption. He honored him at his ascension when he exalted him to his own right hand. He will honor him in the final judgment when every knee shall be made to bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And throughout eternity, he shall be honored by a redeemed people who shall esteem him the fairest among 10,000 to their souls. Infinitely worthy is the lamb to receive honor and glory. And let me add to that, none of that, none of that can be said of a mere human. None of it. But Jesus goes on. He goes on to assert more about himself in contrast to these Jewish leaders. In verse 55, he declares, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. This we might say is another example of Jesus taking the gloves off with the Jewish leaders. He holds nothing back as to the truth of their unbelief, while at the same time placing himself in a strikingly remarkable different category than where they stood in relation to God. Despite their outward pretense, they had no such knowledge of God in a relational, experiential way. They were children of the devil, remember? They were children of the devil who spoke nothing but lies when they contended how they knew God in a favorable sense. But Jesus, on the other hand, unlike the Jewish leaders, says emphatically that he has always known the Father, and one proof he gives to this is the fact of his perfect obedience to the Father's word. He says, but I do know him and I keep his word. This can be rendered more literally. The word that is his word, I am always watching, guarding, and taking heed to. Nothing like this, listen to me, nothing like this could ever be said of a fallen, fallible, sinful man. None of us could dare claim that. We can't claim that. Even as Christians, we can't. But our Lord is not finished. He's not finished with his claims to deity he now brings it all to what we can call is the summit, the vertex of all claims he could possibly make as to his divine nature as God. Reading verses 56 through 58, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, we have to pause here and just take a deep breath. 
over this passage. This is, this is not one of those portions of God's word that you just skim over. That you just gloss over. No, beloved, we have to take a moment here and really consider what we're reading. The overarching doctrine of God which is set forth in these words of our Lord is the eternality of God. That God has always been. No beginning, no ending. He is eternal. But what is so astonishing is that the Lord Jesus Christ is making this claim for himself. He is declaring that this is who he is. The eternal God. Jesus begins this claim with what he says about his relation to Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now let's put this in context. When Jesus spoke these words, Abraham had been dead and buried for 1,850 years. What is he talking about? And yet Abraham, Jesus Christ says, and yet Abraham saw the day of Christ. He saw it. How so? He saw it by faith in all the promises God made to him concerning the incarnation of his eternal son. Abraham rejoiced in this coming redemption for all those who would be his spiritual children by faith in Christ. Paul the Apostle speaks to this in Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. But of course, what this says to the Jewish leaders is that they were actually being false to their ancestor Abraham. Since they had no joy. No joy whatsoever in what Abraham had looked so forward to by faith. And so the Jews react to Jesus. You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Once again, there. Incredulity breaks out in a snarky, cynical way. The implication of this question to Jesus is, you are completely out of your mind. That's where they are, the Jews. You're insane. But how does Jesus respond to this unbelief? Well, here we go. With a double assertion to the truth, amen, amen, let go, men. truly, truly, I say to you, double assertion to the truth, to the truth of what he says concerning himself, Jesus makes the greatest recorded claim to his deity and his equality with the Father found anywhere in the Gospels. In verse 58, we read, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, 
So be it true, so be it true. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The import of what Jesus is saying in these words is, listen closely, is that before Abraham ever came into existence, praying Abraham genastai, genastai, before Abraham ever came into existence, I am, ego in me, I am the eternal one. Do you remember how John opens this gospel account? John chapter 1 verse 1, remember? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, in Arche Hain Halagos, in the beginning the Word always was. It's an imperfect tense, the Word always was. And here in John 8, 58, Jesus is affirming this truth of who he is as the eternal God. One with the Father in all divinity. His true essence, his true nature is no different than the Father because he is equal to all the Father is as God. So he identifies himself as the great ego in me, the great I am. Commenting on these stunning words, J.C. Rowell said this, and listen, pay attention to what J.C. Rowell remarks about this. Without controversy, these remarkable words are a great deep. They contain things which we have no eyes to see through or mind to fathom. But if language means anything, they teach us that our Lord Jesus Christ existed long before he came into the world. Before the days of Abraham, he was. Before man was created, he was. In short, they teach us that the Lord Jesus was no mere man like Moses or David. He was one whose goings forth were from everlasting the same yesterday, today, and forever, very and eternal God. But now let me ask you. Did the Jews understand what Jesus was claiming here? Did they? Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Listen. They clearly caught the truth Jesus asserted about himself but they did not believe him. Hence, what do they do? They proceed to execute him as the law required for such blasphemy. I mean, really, really think about this. 
Okay? When Jesus made this claim, and he had not made a claim this overt to his deity up to this point. You know that those Jewish religious leaders had to be gasping for air. They had never heard anybody say this. And notice, they don't respond anymore to him with words. Now, it's, that's it. He has to die. They understood perfectly what he was claiming. They got it. They got it, but they did not believe it. They did not believe it. You see, there's a greater guilt, my friend, when with your eyes wide open you understand the truth of what God is declaring and yet you still don't believe. That's a greater guilt. Much greater. But following, following this, John tells us something quite remarkable. Now, now look at the, the, the second clause there in verse 59. It reads, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Listen to me. What makes this last narrative so astonishing is that the verb hid is in the passive voice. It's in the passive. So it's not that Jesus hid himself, but that he was hidden by someone else. That's what it's saying. He was hidden by someone else. What John therefore is pointing to is that obviously, clearly, the father was protecting his son because it was not yet the time for his son to be handed over to his enemies to be crucified. And you see that theme throughout John's gospel. Yet his time had not yet come. And so here at the end of John chapter 8, because understand, what were the Jews, what were the leaders, what were they about to do? They were about to kill him. Get that. They were ready to stone him to death. But the father hid his son. We're talking about something here supernatural, people. Something supernatural just happened here. The father hid. The father protected. The father guarded his son. Because it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet. Well, in closing this study of John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59, let me ask a really dumb question. Yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose a really dumb question to you right now. In light of our introduction to this sermon, in light of the introduction, okay, regarding Nicaea, 
Did the council of Nicaea in 325 AD, did they get it right when they confess, with what they confess concerning the person of Jesus Christ? Did they get it right? Oh, yes, they did. Yes, they did. And beloved, to say this again, and it's worth repeating, to confess anything different is to confess a false Christ. Another Jesus, as Paul would put it to the Corinthians. Jesus did not leave us in the dark as to who he really is. He is the eternal Son of God made flesh, co-equal in every way, in every way with the Father and the Holy Spirit as the second person in the being and essence of the triune God. This is who the Lord Jesus Christ truly is. This is who he truly is. He assumed human nature. Didn't add it, he assumed it when he came into the world at one point in time, 2,000 years ago. But before the incarnation, before he assumed human nature, he has always been the son of God. Always. Always. Indeed, before the creation of the world, before the creation of the world, he has always been the son of God. Listen again to what Nicaea says. Before, excuse me, begotten, from the Father before all ages, from all eternity, from all eternity. This is why C.S. Lewis was absolutely correct when he said, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Indeed, as Lewis said elsewhere concerning Jesus Christ, he produced mainly three effects. Jesus produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. Hatred, terror, adoration. And C.S. Lewis said, there was no trace of people expressing mild approval. It was either hatred, terror, or adoration. No, to make the claims that Jesus Christ made, as we have beheld this morning from John chapter 8, he is either, to borrow again from Lewis, he is either the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. But as we know, as we know and how we thank God for this, our Lord Jesus Christ proved every claim concerning his person as God incarnate. How do we know? How do we know? Three days after his crucifixion, what happened? He rose from the dead. He rose from the grave. 
Forty days after his resurrection, he ascended back to the Father, where he is seated at the Father's right hand. And for the last 2,000 years, countless sinners in their sin have been supernaturally saved by the power of Jesus Christ, no different in how he saved them before his incarnation, since there has been only one way of salvation, which is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And so with great confidence, with great assurance, with the authority of God himself revealed by his word, I say to any sinner here who is without Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. There is no other way to be right with God but through Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the glory of your Son as the eternal Son of the Father that has been so profoundly made known to us by your holy scriptures. Very clearly, very overtly, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for such utter clarity as to who this Jesus of Nazareth really is. The Christ of the living God. The eternal Son of the Father. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for that time and that place in our own personal, individual lives when the glory of who Jesus Christ is was made known to us in a saving way by the Word and the Spirit. And you drew us by these divine means to your Son and gave us the faith to believe and lay hold upon him for eternal life. And we thank you again, oh God, we thank you for such saving, eternal, glorious redemption in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. But Father, we also beseech you today for many, many people that we know personally, Lord, in our, in our family circle, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, people that are somewhere in the circle of our influence, that are, that are lost, that are unbelieving, that 
remain in darkness even at this moment in time. And for them, Holy Father, we beseech you, save them, O God, to the uttermost. Draw them effectually to the Son of your love, Jesus Christ our Lord. We trust in your saving power to bring this to pass because, Father, we know your arm is not too short to save. Even for those people that we might think it is impossible, they'll never believe, they'll never come to Christ. Lord, forgive us for such unbelief. Nothing is too difficult for you. And so we pray, we pray this day for the salvation of those sinners that weigh heavy on our hearts quite regularly, Lord, that know you not. But with you, we know that what is impossible for man is possible with you. And so we believe you for this. In the name and for the sake, for the honor and for the glory of your eternal Son, Jesus, the Christ of the living God, our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.